come together and we open our Bibles and we read it and our preachers tell us what it means. And that, my friends, is biblical preaching. That is as complicated as we get. So I'm going to do that with you today. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. I didn't say Hebrews, I said Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, and I'll begin reading today in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. God, we come before you today humbly. We need your help. I need your help to rightly explain and preach your word. We all need your help to hear and to understand and to live your word out. But that's what we want. So Holy Spirit, will you help us today to glorify you in your word as it does a work in us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And now, for something completely different. I don't mean I'm not talking about the JV team getting to preach today. Uh, I'm speaking of the book of Proverbs. I must commend you, Sojourn. You guys are champs. You are now theological geniuses. After 36 sermons through 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews... One of the most challenging books in the Bible, you have covered now some of the hardest, most difficult things that we will find in Scripture. Uh, How about the high priesthood in the order of Melchizedek? You know, your favorite thing. Check. We got that. How about how the new covenant in Jesus Christ fulfills the old covenant given to Moses? Those are simple, easy things. No way. But check. We've got that, right? Here's another easy one. Apostasy. Can I lose my salvation? No one ever wonders that, right? Yes, we do. That's deep. That's difficult. And again, check. We have covered these things in the book of Proverbs, even up to the heavenly city that awaits us with an unshakable foundation. These are all amazing and deep Truths, they're worthy of our attention, but sometimes these high and holy thoughts come with a danger, and the danger is that we do not let these high and holy things seep into our everyday lives. We're all affected by this. It's part of having a a modern mind. Our modern minds tend to do something very unhelpful for us. Uh, We've been doing it for centuries. We split things up into two different realms. 
we split things up into the sacred realm and the secular realm. We divide up our minds and even our lives into compartments or categories. And so, of course, the sacred things are the parts of our lives and thoughts that relate directly and obviously to God. So, uh, coming to church, corporate worship, uh, going to home group, reading your Bible, uh, when you pray, thinking about Melchizedek's priesthood or apostasy, uh, those things are very easily discerned as sacred things or holy things. But then uh, we have another category or compartment in which we put secular things. Secular means uh, God has nothing to do with it. Work, leisure, exercising, eating, math, money, politics, friendship, vehicle maintenance, football. What do those things have to do with God? If we're being honest, we might say probably nothing. And even when we can conceive of work being a sacred activity, we don't think of the actual work that we do. We just think that while I am at work, I might have a sacred moment over here on the side where I talk about God things or share the gospel with someone. But then we get right back to our secular world and we have a a dumb way of talking about this. We say, oh, that was a God thing. Right? As if every other thing that you'd been doing had nothing to do with him. But right here, this thing that you liked, oh, God thing. Yes. Sorry if I just hurt your feelings. (laughs) In other words, the sacred and secular split means that in our real lives, God is relevant for some things, but irrelevant in the vast majority of the things that we actually do all day. We don't do this on purpose. We don't actually literally have these compartments in a bag, but we do it. The sacred and secular split. And that's why I am so thankful to begin today uh, our church's preaching through the book of Proverbs. I'm thankful for the diversity in the Bible God doesn't just include high-flying theological wonders like Hebrews, but also down-to-earth, nitty-gritty books like the Proverbs. And I believe the Proverbs take a sledgehammer to the sacred and secular split and say that is absolutely not how God intends for us to live our lives. The biblical view, I believe, is that everything is sacred, There's no such thing as a God thing. There's no such thing as a God compartment or God-related part of your life. Everything is sacred. Your beating heart, your next breath is a God thing. The universe is the only compartment that God is even aware of, and actually he can't even fit in that one because we've discovered that there are multiple universes. That's not enough for him. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper explained this uh, issue, this sacred-secular split and the problem of it, probably better than anyone I've ever heard. This is his quote. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch 
in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine! Not a square inch of any part of your life every day does not belong to Jesus Christ. It's his. The Apostle Paul said it in a slightly different way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31. You've probably heard this one often. He says, so whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. So with the book of Proverbs, we're trying to figure out what God wants to fill into that whatever you do, or that every square inch of the human domain What does God want in there? He has a will for those parts of your life. And that includes many square inches that you might be tempted to label as secular. I'll just give you a few examples. I don't want to walk on any future sermons, but just some examples of um, what kinds of things we're talking about, what kinds of topics in the book of Proverbs. Uh, According to the Proverbs, God wants soul rulership over these things. God wants to rule over who you hang out with. God wants to rule over your effort at work. God wants to be the king of how much you eat. And he even discusses where you sit at the table, how we report our taxes, how much we charge for our goods and services. God is actually interested in ruling over these parts of your lives. According to the Proverbs, God cares very much about such mundane things as this. How we treat our pets. When we go to bed. When we get out of bed, dear But here's even worse. The Proverbs address how we greet one another when we first wake up in the morning. Here's a hint. I don't want to ruin it. Softly. Christ wants to be Lord over not just what I say. I think we get that one. But he also wants to be Lord over how I say it. But here he goes even further. He wants to be Lord over how often I say anything at all. You want another hint? Less. My dad quotes this to my sons often. He probably quoted it to me too. He said, even a fool, if he remains silent, will be thought wise. That's actually a slam. (laughs) So if God wants to be worshipped, if God wants to be obeyed, and even all of these mundane details of our lives, I think there are two ways you can respond to that fact. Uh, There's a wrong way to respond to it. And of course, the wrong way is to say, man, is God some kind of control freak? Does he not have better things to worry about than when I wake up in the morning and how hard I work um, why, why does he need to be in every area of my life? That's the wrong way to respond. I think a better way would be this. Man, 
God cares about us so much that every single part of our lives, every moment of our day, actually matters to him. We learned in Hebrews that God will never leave us nor forsake us. But since he is with us, Proverbs suggests that he would like to drive. He'd like to be in control and help us get where he wants us to go. The Bible doesn't just give us truths that save us from hell and death. But the Bible gives us truths that save us from wasted time that save us from regret, from dangerous circumstances, from broken, messed up relationships. The Bible gives us truth that saves us from a ruined name. God's truth doesn't just guide us to the heavenly city, but it also guides us to our very next step on the ground. And over each step and over each moment, he cries out, Mine. So now let's enter into the text. It's usually pretty hard to put together a, an introductory sermon because you have to get a lot of background details, but the book of Proverbs actually does a, a pretty good job of this for us. So we'll address a lot of the introductory issues that we would in any book, but they're right here uh, in the verse sentence, the Proverbs of Solomon Son of David, King of Israel, that uh, asks the question, we have to stop and say, wait a minute, what is a proverb? And how are they so much different than what we saw in an epistle like Hebrews or in a, a historical narrative like the Gospels? What is a proverb? And I will define a proverb this way. A proverb is a short, memorable statement that reflects general truths. A short, memorable statement that reflects general truths, or said differently, they are statements about the way life usually goes. All cultures have them. The Hebrews did not invent the proverb, nor were they the last, as they've been a common way that uh, human patterns are presented to the young. Present patterns of reality that are frequently observed, but which have exceptions. Now, some of the words that I just used in that definition might bug some of you. You might be uncomfortable uh, by hearing me say that there are exceptions to the Proverbs. And that they express general truths about the way life usually goes. That seems a little bit wimpy, doesn't it? I even had a... So I was explaining this at, at the Bible Academy. I had a student come to me afterwards when I taught these things. And, and she said, well, if they're not totally true, like literally true all the way in every situation, then why did God put them in the Bible? She thought that was an inappropriate thing. But I did explain them exactly as I meant to. And I think it might make more sense to you if I describe what that means by, by saying it negatively, what a proverb is not and, and I'll say it this way, a proverb is not a promise. A proverb is not a promise. I know someone gave you the God's Little Promise book when you graduated, and it was full of proverbs. The proverbs are not promises. 
They're not written as promises from God so that in every circumstance in life, this is exactly what will happen no matter what as long as you do this. That's not how the Proverbs work. God makes many promises in Scripture, but the Proverbs are not them. Another way to say it that might even make you more uncomfortable is that the, the Proverbs are not to be taken literally. They are to be taken literarily. That means according to the literature or the genre of the proverb. Genre is just a fancy way to say style of writing. So if that sounds terrible, you're thinking, Pastor Ryan doesn't believe the Bible is true. Yes, he does. I'm a Bible thumper. I believe that it's true, but let me give you some examples. I have three examples to help you um, sort through this idea and see what I mean. So the first one, Proverbs chapter 10, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. Turn with me there. So we're asking the question, do we interpret them literally or do we interpret them literarily? Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So do I interpret this literally or literarily? When I was a pastor in Washington, I had a good friend who was interpreting this proverb literally. And it was weighing heavily upon his soul. He was broken. He was immobile. And the reason is this. His wife, several months earlier, she was our children's minister. She was 39 years old. And she has a sudden brain aneurysm and dies a few days later. And so he's going to God's word for comfort and for strength. He's hurting. And he runs into this promise supposedly or maybe from the Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. And so his question to me was, um, he's trying to interpret this, and so he says, is God a liar? Because my wife obviously feared the Lord, and her life was not prolonged. Or... If God is not a liar, was my wife an imposter? And maybe I didn't really know her at all. Maybe she did not fear the Lord, and that's why her years were cut short. Maybe she was wicked, trying to find comfort, and again, all he finds is pain. So I tried to help him see the Proverbs do not work that way. They aren't to be interpreted in a wooden, literal manner as if their promises or guarantees from God that this is the way everything is always going to go, no matter what. They're taken literarily as statements about the way life usually goes in God's universe. So what does this proverb mean? How do we interpret it literarily? Well, we know that this is generally true from this proverb that wicked lifestyles are more likely to shorten your lifespan and that a godly lifestyle, godly living brings longevity. That is generally true. But there are exceptions to that general truth, and his wife was surely one of them. Another proverb in the same chapter, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Proverbs 10, 4. 
A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Can paraphrase that one? If you're lazy, you'll be poor. If you work hard, you'll be rich. Is that literally true or is that literarily true? Could do, we could figure this out real easy. Um, if it's literal, then I only need one bit of information about you to find out if you are lazy or hardworking, right? How much money do you have? Tell me. And I'll make my judgment and pronouncement on you. We could maybe divide up the congregation. I say, hey, if you, let's say, I'll just draw a line arbitrarily, randomly. 85000 If you make 85000 or more a year, then congratulations, that means you are a hard worker. All of you who make under $85,000, you are a pathetic, lazy bum. When are you going to get up off the couch and figure it out? Amen? <laughs> no men. No, that's wrong, right? That's ridiculous. This, this proverb is not literarily or not literally true in that way. We all know people who work very, very hard and never have riches to show for it. And we know wealthy folks who have everything that their hearts could ever desire and haven't shed one bead of sweat to accomplish that. So does that mean the Proverbs are untrue or that God is a liar? Of course not. It means we are being foolish with God's wise words. We know what this proverb means, that it is generally, that is to say it is proverbially, proverbially true, that if you want to get ahead financially, then hard work is a better plan than no work, right? That's what this means. That's the point of Proverbs 10.4, taken literarily, but not if you take it literally. And then the last one is more controversial, probably. It's not controversial, just painful. Proverbs 22, 6. You've heard this one before. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Have you heard that one? Have you claimed that as a promise from God? Again, that's not how the Proverbs work. And I don't say this in a flippant manner when I debunk a popular understanding of this passage. I have held a weeping mother in my arms who read this verse as a promise and not a proverb. Not my own mother, although I could do the same. Right? She couldn't decide when she read this proverb if God was a liar or if they screwed up, they did not properly disciple their children or if their child just hadn't had enough time yet to come back to the Lord. So it's either God's fault, number one, number two, it's my fault, or number three, my child just hasn't had enough time. And my answer to her was, it's none of the above. But 
hang on to number three, because there is always hope for your child to come to the Lord as long as they are alive, but that hope is not to give God more of an opportunity to fulfill his promise to you. That's not the reason. This mother had raised all of her children to love the Lord in the exact same way. She discipled them. She took them to church. She lived her Christian faith with her husband out before them. And her other children loved Jesus. And that when he is old part, when he's supposed to come back, that's not, that doesn't literally mean when he's 80 he might come back to the faith. Uh, that phrase means when he's got hair on his chin. So we're talking teenage years. The proverb tells us that this is generally, usually, and most often true, that parents who love God and work diligently to teach their kids to walk and live in the fear of the Lord usually get what they're aiming at. That is proverbially proverbially true. But sometimes, no matter how well the children are loved and taught, they walk away from the faith of their parents. I'm belaboring this point today because all of these are coming from from real life examples. This isn't just theoretically how you interpret the Bible. Interpreting the Bible poorly, no matter which genre or type of scripture, can harm and distort the way that you see God and the way that you live before him, and we don't want to do that. A proverb is a short Memorable statement of general truth telling us how life usually goes. So let's go back to Proverbs chapter 1. We'll answer the second question. The text answers, who wrote the Proverbs? It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Don't you wish the book of Hebrews would have been so clear? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Uh, Some good ideas, some options we don't quite know. Um, Hebrews did not sufficiently answer for us, but Proverbs gives us a little bit of help here, but it doesn't give us the comprehensive answer because these are actually, as we read through the Proverbs, what we find is that Solomon didn't write all of these Proverbs. It is an anthology, or it's a collection of collections of wisdom put together uh, in one place over a period of 400 years. So King Solomon begins this this project, and 400 years later, in the 7th century, King Hezekiah, he's also the king of Israel, king of Judah. He has some uh, scribes put this together. There's a section that's attributed to wise men. We don't know who, which wise men they are. Uh, There is a, Proverbs 30 is written by Agur. Who is Agur? I don't know. Proverbs 31 is written by King Lemuel. Who's King Lemuel? We don't really know. And so when King Hezekiah's own wise men or sages completed this anthology, the big name got the top billing, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Uh, And what does he have to do with the wisdom Literature, the wisdom tradition of Israel anyway, well, everything. Solomon's the third king of Israel after David, his father. 
And he was given an astounding invitation by God. Uh, When he becomes king, God comes to Solomon and he says, what do you want? Ask me. Ask me for anything. And Solomon thinks about it. And his answer is very humble. He, He basically says, I'm just a little kid. I don't know what I'm doing. And here I am. I'm set to govern this this massive group of people, and I need help. And so he says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So an understanding and a discerning mind telling good from evil, that's another way of saying wisdom. That's what Solomon asks for. He doesn't ask for um, riches doesn't ask for military might, victory over his enemies. He doesn't ask for a long life, but he asks for wisdom. And we can see that is exactly what Solomon got. I'll read to you from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 34. It says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, And breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Does it sound like Solomon is gleaning his his wisdom based on the sacred and secular split? No. Solomon knows what God's word says, that the king of the Hebrews is to to write out his own handwritten copy of it and put it by his nightstand and meditate on it day and night. But he's also looking at God's other book, his book of creation, and he's examining, he's looking at lizards, he's looking at trees, and he's seeing God's wisdom in them and even being able to apply that to human life. It's easy to understand how such a man could write a proverb that says, sounds something like this. He's like, hey, lazy person. Hey, sluggard. That's what he calls them. Don't be a sluggard. What a terrible word. Sluggard. Come here. Go watch the ants. Watch them climb around on their ant hill. You see a difference between what they're doing and what you're doing? They're doing something, you're doing nothing, be like the ant, Solomon, wisdom of God. And it is a gift from God, and those who possessed it long ago have passed it on to us in wisdom literature like Proverbs. So we know what a proverb is, we know who wrote them, and now let's answer the third question, What will the Proverbs do to us? Maybe I could say it a little better. Uh, What does God want to do in us as we study the Proverbs? Uh, At OBA, we have a document called um, 
expected student outcomes. We have expected student outcomes. And so we say, we need to think about what is our end goal, right? So if you, if you put these kids from little Christian families into the OBA machine and they go through all of this process of going to school and then they go out and they become adults, what's out there? Or what do we want to send out there? What kind of person do we want our graduates to be? Now, of course, we can't control that. Are some people going to go through and reject the things that they're taught and not care? Yeah, absolutely. That happens. Uh, just like parenting, just like children. But we still have a target. And we say, what kind of person are we trying to create? And so that's what we have here in the Proverbs. We have some expected student outcomes for those who enroll in God's school of wisdom. Uh, but before we get to some of those, uh, or we see the first one is in... Verses 2 and 3. Proverbs 1, verse 2 and 3. Student outcome, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. So the first expected outcome, what do the Proverbs want to do to us? Well, they want to make us, God wants to make us wise in every direction. Wise in every direction. And before we talk about those directions, we probably need to pause for a second and talk about what do we mean when we say wisdom? What is wisdom? Biblically speaking, wisdom is not about intelligence. It's not about intelligence. It's not having mere information stored in your head. Wisdom is not the possession of the person with the highest IQ or the person who does best on a certain test. That's not what biblical wisdom is. Instead, biblical wisdom is the ability to make good decisions in life, to read situations, other people, and yourself in light of who God is and what God loves. So, you're saying, based on what, who God is and what He loves, what He wants for us, how do I make decisions? How do I read every situation that I am? How do I read myself? To know how God wants us to do that is to be wise. Doing and desiring what God wants in every area, no matter how big or how small. And this, uh, verses 2 and 3 uh, shoot this wisdom or apply this wisdom and in different directions. And so the first direction we see is that it's directed toward others. And I think that's what he means there when he says to receive instruction in wise dealings. He's talking about how we relate to other people. Wisdom gives us the ability to read other people and discern who they are, to engage them whether we need to bless them. Sometimes that discernment pushes us away from them and tells us to steer clear. Wisdom aims to transform our relationships. The second direction it sends us is it, it gives us wisdom and discernment toward God. And that's, again, about reading ourselves. Uh, he says we're going to be trained in righteousness. Wisdom gives us the ability to read and discern ourselves running toward things that make us like Jesus and running away from inward desires that don't. Do we need help with this, discerning ourselves? Do you tell yourself lies 
so that you can do what you want to do sometimes, so that you can do the wrong thing even though that you know it's wrong, but can you concoct a reasonable defense for why you want to do this bad thing? You can. You do. That's what we do. Welcome to being a sinner. God wants to give us wisdom so that we can see righteousness, so that we crave that and want that, and we'll argue back against ourselves to the glory of God. And the third direction it pushes us is toward the world. You can see that wisdom, instruction, includes things like justice and equity or fair dealing. Wisdom helps us properly see right and wrong paths and influences in our society and culture. So the first one was the other people around us. The second one was wisdom toward discerning ourselves. The third one is what's going on in the world? Not just the people that you know, but the culture and the society around us. Wisdom helps us see what is harming our culture and what is helping the world around us. This is why nothing is off limits in the Proverbs. This is why the Proverbs talk about kings, politics, economics, laws. The Proverbs talk about farming and war and parenting. Why? Because God wants justice and fairness in all of these areas. But our sin contributes instead to further fragmentation and harm of the human race. So wisdom gives us God's clear vision of others, of ourselves, and of our neighbors all over the world. And with the next two verses, we move on from that general statement about purpose and wisdom to more specific audience. Young people, get ready. Second goal or expected student outcome of the Proverbs is to prepare the inexperienced. To prepare the inexperienced. Look at verse 4. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Here the youth and young people are called simple. If you are young, do not be offended. There are worse words in the Bible that God could call you. Especially in the book of Proverbs, he could call you a fool. But as we'll see at the end, the Proverbs can't actually help the fool. So we're not talking about someone who's fool, and and the word fool actually has a spiritual connotation, has some evil intent behind it. It's a rebellious heart. A fool is not a stupid person. But and this isn't saying that young people are stupid either. It's like calling them, as I said, inexperienced. That's one of the primary literary devices in the book of Proverbs is the parent speech. And so you can even see, just look down to verse 8, how this starts. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So uh, a lot of these are written as a parenting handbook to say, here, moms, dads, do this. Read this to your kids. Go through this with your kids. Uh, Young people are simple in that they are inexperienced in life for a very simple reason. They have not yet flown out of the nest, right? Even if you give your kids lots of experiences and they've seen the world and done this or that, it's still not the same as being pushed out of the nest to fly on your own without mom and dad's help. For most young people, 
Those formative years are lived under a protective covering, and that is good. That is God's intention. And while they're under that covering, God can actually prepare them for the experiences that are coming their way. And we do this with everything. If uh, Coach Mendenhall, if you're, going, if you're going to play a football team that week, you prepare, you study the path that is coming. You watch film of the other team so that you're ready. You don't just say, hey, man, who are we playing? I don't even know. Let's just practice and go out there and see what happens, man. God will take care of us, right? Have you ever done that? No. Okay. Training. Training ground for future living. That's what the Proverbs are. And that includes teaching them, this is controversial today, this is crazy, but that includes teaching them about the good path, the wise path, and teaching them about the wicked path. That's controversial because that's not how we view education in our day today. The hippest, newest, coolest ways to educate children, it goes something like this. We shouldn't tell people what's right and wrong. Don't tell kids what they should think, just teach them how to think. Doesn't that sound deep and wise? In other words, give them all of the options of things they could believe and things they could do in a value-neutral manner. Like, this is all just, you know, different paths. And then let them decide for themselves. That is wise, and that makes great sense if these things are true. If there's not really a path that leads to glory and a path that leads to destruction, then by all means... Don't talk about one path like it's good and one path like it's bad. That makes sense, right? And also, that makes great sense if young people are good and even morally neutral. But that's not the biblical view of young people or middle-aged people or old people, right? That's not a biblical view of human nature. The Proverbs tell us, you want to know what it says about young hearts? It says, foolishness is bound up in their hearts. Foolishness, not stupidity, but natural, inborn rebellion against God. That's where we start. So you're going to act like one path's good and one path's, they're all all the same kind of path? No, because it's not true. The young and inexperienced need help. And through the Proverbs, God gives it. Third student outcome, some of you think this has nothing to do with you, right? I'm not young. I'm not simple. I've seen about everything, right? Expected outcome number three, look at verse five. The Proverbs make the wise wiser still. Verse five, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain Guidance. So what he's saying is there are people who are enrolled in this class who've been in it a long time and they never graduated and that's perfect. The wise will get wiser still. If you are wise in the ways of God and his world, you're not finished yet. We need God's guidance in every area of life. Our need for wisdom, relational knowledge of God, that doesn't go away until the day that we look Jesus directly in the face, and that starts forever, right? That's when we don't need any more wisdom. 
Godly men and women, wise men and women are continually seeking God's guidance for them, God's path, God's discernment. And I need to make a distinction here. Wisdom has many synonyms, but age is not one of them. To be wise is not the same thing as to be old. As the last verse in our text today will show us, many of the most intelligent people who have ever lived, many of the oldest souls have not even taken the first step on the path of true wisdom and knowledge. But I'll tell you this, uh, when you've got both, when you have wisdom and you have old age, wisdom that's built up from decades of knowing and loving and obeying God you have something special. And I think we should put a sign on your house. We should build a monument. It should have a flashing arrow that says, Inquire within. (laughs) National treasure. Come talk to this person. They have the wisdom of God, and they've been building that wisdom for a very long time. I love to see and hear the wisdom of God flowing from the mouths of senior saints. I delight in it. And one of my favorite wells from which to draw wisdom is my grandpa Daryl. He's not here today. My grandpa Cotton is here today, and I'm not going to talk about him because the Proverbs say that the praise of a man tests him. So I don't want to test you to to be overly proud or anything like that. I don't want to be a thorn in your flesh So I'm going to talk about my other grandpa instead. My grandpa Daryl, he's got age. He's 85 years old. And those years include an abundance of experiences. But not just any experience. He has amassed a metric ton of Jesus experience. And there's a big difference between a lot of years just lived and a lot of years lived with Jesus. Big difference. My grandpa has been a dairyman and a farmer all of his life. He never went to college like I did. He's never studied calculus. And he can very easily wreck his laptop computer just by checking Facebook. (laughs) Like, Grandpa, what'd you do? I checked Facebook. Maybe somebody can fix it. I just need a new computer. No, you probably don't. But one summer, I had the privilege of actually living with my grandparents. And and that's a little different than just going to visit. Um, So I got to go to bed and wake up with my grandparents one summer when I was in college. And I observed something I'd never really seen before. What I observed was their, uh, their lifestyle, how they lived. And they had this routine that they did every day. They'd wake up early in the morning... And my grandpa would sit at his table, and he'd take his big, green, puffy, living Bible. He'd open it up, and he would read God's words to his wife. And they'd read for a long time. And then they'd shut their Bible, and both of them would get down on their knees, and they'd put their head on their chair, and they would pray. 
They would talk to God about the things that God was just saying to them. They would pray for all of their kids. They would pray for their grandkids, me. And I know for a fact they still pray for me. They pray for my students that I teach. They pray for my sons. Mainly that they will love Jesus and walk on a wise path. And that routine lived out in the living room, in the dining room, in the wheat field, in the barn for years and years gives him something that I have very, very little of, and that is wisdom. Yes, I went to seminary. I learned Greek and Hebrew. I read big, fat books of theology full of words that my grandpa Daryl might not even understand. I'm an ordained minister. I marry and bury people with the authority vested in me by major county? That sounds pretty important. All that to say, I, I know a lot more. I, pro- I probably have a lot higher understanding of the intricacies and, and theological uh, aspects of the Bible than my grandpa. But there have been many times in my life when I was struggling and when I was pressed from every side to make hard decisions that had consequences, like people were going to be affected. I felt just like, like King Solomon saying, I'm a dumb little kid and I don't know what to do and people are going to get hurt if I don't do it right. I've been in those situations and my phone would ring. Just Grandpa Daryl calling to check on me. How you doing? I'm not the kind of person who can just have a, eh, fine, that's not me. So I'd pour out my guts, my fears, my worries. Daryl would give a gentle laugh. Not a laugh, not a condescending laugh. <laughs> you dumb kid. But, but a laugh that says, you're going to be all right, man. There's nothing new under the sun. God's got this. And then he would begin to speak, and my grandpa would show that he had insight into people and into situations. And he even had insight into me that I didn't even have. And scriptural wisdom would just pour out of his mouth, not because he had more information than me, but because he had been living under God's gaze and for God's glory for a long time. He was wise. He is wise. And in the end, God would use my grandfather's wisdom to guide my path, to calm my heart, to give me clarity. But I will say this for him, and I know he would agree with me, that verse 5 is true for him. The wise need wisdom still. Daryl Reese needs more wisdom. And he's experiencing new things in his life now that he's never experienced before. He's got cancer. Looks like that is under control, but even worse, the hardest part of his life right now is that grandma's health is fine. Her body is fine, but her mind isn't. She's slipping. She's not the same person 
that she used to be. That has completely changed his life and their marriage in every single way. These new experiences are difficult, and for him to take joy in the Lord right now is really hard. It hurts. And he needs to keep coming to the well of God's wisdom and keep drinking. The wise man needs to increase in learning and obtain more guidance for the days ahead. We never outgrow our need for wisdom. In the last Expected outcome we see in verse 6. It almost seems silly after talking about that. Verse 6 says, To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. That's right, what you just read is that one of the purposes of the proverbs is to help us understand the proverbs. That might seem silly or simplistic. The proverbs are short, they are memorable. But they're not always easy to understand, and I'll just throw one out there and let you figure it out. Proverbs 26, I believe with all of my heart that there are no contradictions in the Bible. Therefore, Proverbs 26, verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, do I answer him or don't I? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. You have to be wise. You have to study the Proverbs to understand the Proverbs, right? Apparently, not every fool is the same kind of fool. Some fools need to be answered lest they get too big for their britches. Some fools need to be left alone because you can't help that dude, right? So how do I know which kind of fool I'm talking to? Well... That takes wisdom. And so even to study the Proverbs is to grow in our wisdom of the Proverbs. And finally, the the capstone of, of this introduction. We've seen the purpose. We know who wrote it. We know what a proverb is. The last part he gives us is lesson number one. The first thing that you need to know, there is a prerequisite for this course. It's not experience, remember? He said, the young people, the simple, come on. You're not too old. The wise, they need to come. The prerequisite is in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools can't come to class. Fools can't learn the wisdom of God because they don't want it. They don't think they need it. Unless you start with a certain posture toward God, you will never truly become wise. And that posture is the posture of the bended knee. You will not walk wisely on the earth until you've become a child of the king. That means that a right relationship with God precedes right living before God. Many have pointed out that God is rarely mentioned in the Proverbs, and that's true. But this statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says it again at the end in chapter 9 of the introduction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
that time. That sets the whole theological course for the book of Proverbs. Yes, God cares about the aims, or cares about and aims to speak into and guide every area of our lives. But before we can live a life that pleases God and blesses others, we must know Him as He truly is and enter into a proper relationship with Him. That means we must live in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean, the fear of the Lord? It means living life as if you are living before the Lord all the time, because guess what? You are. Living a life of reverence, worship, humility, and yes, even fear. Some people are really quick to take that part out of it. If God is the judge of all humankind, there is always going to be an element of godly fear. To fear the Lord is to know that God is everywhere, that he sees all, and that he cares about what we do. Not just when we're in this church building, but everywhere, all the time. To live in the fear of God is to live with Him as our primary audience. We're not living to please all of the people around us. We are living to please Him. And we're accountable to Him for how we use our lives, our time, our passion, our money, our sleep, our cattle, our cars, our business, our play. To live in the fear of the Lord is to live from a place of submission, need, dependence on Jesus Christ for every breath we take and decision we make. We have to know that we are broken and that only Jesus can fix us. That's why Jesus said a pretty harsh thing to the Pharisees. He said, "Um, hey, I'm the physician, but I didn't come to help the healthy people. I just came to help the sick people. And if they would ask him, wait, who's healthy? Nobody. Everybody's sick. Everybody is sin sick. Everybody is broken and needs the great physician to mend their souls and guide and protect their path, but not everybody knows that. And the person that doesn't know that is called a fool. They don't know that because they don't want to know that. They hate wisdom. They despise humility. They loathe to be told that they have a lack that only God can fill. They don't want to hear that they need to repent and put their trust in God, not their knowledge and their own skill. Amen. Jesus cannot help the fool until they repent, nor can the Proverbs. And yes, even though Proverbs comes chronologically before the Gospels, before Jesus, I think you'll find that this book is all about Jesus. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived until God put on flesh. And when Jesus was walking around in the flesh, in Matthew 12, 42, he let everybody know. He said, hey, something greater than Solomon is here. He meant himself. The Apostle Paul called him the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Do you want to be wise? Whether you are young and inexperienced, whether you've walked in the fear of the Lord for half a century, God has guidance for you here. Build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. The very wisdom of God in human form. 
and begin to practice, even now, but all the way through this series, begin to declare every square inch of your life, let Jesus declare that mine, because it belongs to him. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would grant repentance to fools today. There may have been some who walked in who do not need your help, who think you are irrelevant to their lives and that they've got this all figured out. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would shake them and that they would know that they need you. And that you're not just the scary God of judgment, but that you're a God of love. And that the judgment has been paid in full for their sin at the cross. If they will turn from their sin and put their trust in you, God, I pray that that would happen. And for the rest of us, Jesus, I pray that we would be hungry for you. I pray that we would seek out and destroy every area of our lives that we think is secular and has nothing to do with you. And that you would make good fruit grow there. That that area would blossom and become an act of worship. One of the ways.